Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Genesis chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at uh, half of the verses there in that chapter, and uh, we'll try to get as far as we can get today with the time constraints that we have. But anyway, we're actually going to start looking at the flood, what caused the flood, and things that initiated it. But the overarching principle is what your title says is entering into the new life. And what's going to happen is once Noah gets on the ark with his family and God shuts the door, basically at that point, spiritually speaking, Noah has entered into a new life. He has left his old life and now entering the life God wants him to have. And then obviously when the ark settles, he'll come out and establish that new life, that new way of living. And it's a picture, believe it or not, of our salvation that when we enter Christ, which is the ark, who is the ark, I should say, he is a picture of us leaving our old life and entering into the new life. And I'll bring out some aspects about that because this whole story of Noah is a picture of our salvation in Christ and and what that entails once you enter into the ark. What you'll see with Noah is that once he enters into the ark, his work is not done. Now, the ark has been provided for him. God shuts the door and he's sealed in it. But he has to do some work inside the ark. He has to feed the animals. He has to feed himself. He has to make sacrifices. He has to do different things. And then once he gets out of the ark into the new world, he has to continue on with his obedience. And that's a picture of us as once we come into Christ and we come in to know him and salvation, that's not where it ends. It's only the beginning. Once you're in Christ... You start this new life. You start this new paradigm. And how to live is different than what we've been living with prior to coming to him. Our whole life changes. And we'll look a little bit about what he was doing and then make the application for us as well. But what I want to do is exegete the scripture and then we'll go into that application at the end. So let's start in chapter 7, verse 1 of how Noah entered into that new life. It says in verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. So notice the word come. It's an invitation to come inside the ark. And that's the same thing Jesus gave, an invitation. Come to me, all ye who are weary and heavy laden. So once you come in the ark, the invitation is to come in and be safe. That's where safety is found. And safety is found in Jesus. And a lot of the pictures of Jesus, if you remember in the Gospels, where the storm was happening around them, and uh, the disciples are on the boat, and he says, come out to him. And remember, Peter went out to him. Well, Peter walked for a while, as long as he kept his eyes on Jesus, if you recall. But the issue, the point he's making is, look at what the other disciples did. They chose to stay in the boat. They didn't get out of the boat and come to Jesus. He invited them to come. So I got to give credit to Peter. He's the only guy that went out of the boat. But the the disciples were showing us that they felt more secure in their form of security, which was a boat, rather than to be with Jesus, who is the real security, out in the storm. Believe it or not, the safest place for you and I is to be out in the waters, 
with Jesus in the midst of a storm rather than our own form of what we think is security. That's a hard thing for us to grasp because it takes a lot of faith. But Jesus invites us out into that storm with him and saying, look, the only safe place is just be with me. Come with me. Don't stay on the boat. Get out of the boat. And so this is about Noah leaving that old life of security. Whatever gave Noah that security, whatever it was, he had to leave it. I want you to think about this. In order to build an ark of this size at that period of time, Noah had to be a very wealthy man. He had to pay for the resources for that ark and build it, which indicates he had to leave his wealth behind. He entered into the ark and left all his wealth to the flood. He cast it away. Maybe that's why a lot of people didn't enter the ark. They were afraid of losing all that they had because they couldn't take anything with them. They could only take themselves. It's interesting. So God invites him in. And one of the things the text says is that you are righteous before me. It's not only just positional righteousness that he has. It's also practical righteousness. That Noah lives the kind of life that God wants him to live. He's completely obedient. Even though he doesn't know anything going on, he doesn't know what a flood will be. He's never seen rain. He's never understood that. And yet he acts without knowledge but because he acts on faith. Also, as we looked in Genesis 6, 9, Noah's family and himself are genetically pure. We made that point a couple sermons ago. His genetic line has not been crossed up with hybrids like the Nephilim, uh, which perpetrated from the fallen angels taking uh, human women and mating with them and creating these Nephilim hybrids. So Genesis indicates his genetics are pure. So if God's going to restart humanity after it's been genetically modified, he's got to start with pure genetics because the Messiah has to be 100% human. So part of the reason Noah and his family are on the ark is not just simply practical righteous or positional righteousness. He is pure genetically in that regard. And so that's one of the main reasons he's there. Let's continue on in verse 2. You shall take with you seven of each of every clean animal, a male and his female, to each of the animals that are unclean, a male and a female. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Now, people might say, well, this is Moses writing this, and Moses is putting back into Genesis the Mosaic law of clean and unclean animals. And that's not what Moses is doing. Moses is showing you that from the outset, of even early on in creation, God required sacrificial animals, the blood of an animal. That's clear from what Cain and Abel were doing. They were habitually giving animal sacrifices. But it also shows you in this text that even back then, God told them what animals are clean and what animals are unclean. Clean animals would be used for sacrifice to Yahweh. So already back then, Yahweh was telling them, I only want one kind of animal sacrificed to me. And it probably, that's what lended itself into Mosaic law of what was clean versus unclean. And so God was already telling them what is expected. So Noah is preparing the ark for sacrificing as well. For not, not only sacrificing while he's on the ark, but sacrificing afterwards as well. So the sacrificial system is brought with him. Okay? What do you mean for application in this? Well, we know that the ultimate sacrifice is the Messiah. We've accepted his sacrifice. 
But the other thing that's required that once you're on the ark or in Christ is, according to Romans 12, you must become a living sacrifice. You must be willing to sacrifice your life for the life Christ wants you to live. So our Christian life is a continual sacrifice of giving up things, ending certain things, necessary endings, sacrificing worldly pursuits, sacrificing worldly wealth, and those kinds of things. It's a life of sacrifice. Guys, here's the principle. If your Christian life doesn't cost you anything, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about your discipleship, your sanctification. If your Christian life doesn't cost you anything, you've got to question what kind of life you're living. You should be living in a sense of you, you're making sacrifices to be able to live for Christ. The stands you take, the words you say to people, the witness that you give, the kind of lifestyle you live will be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice in some form or fashion. And that's what Noah is teaching us, that he carries this sacrificial mindset onto the ark with him and afterwards as well. So it speaks to our discipleship. In verse 3, it says, Also seven each of birds of air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of the earth, of all the earth. It's interesting. The Hebrew is given us an illusion. It, that word species is actually the word zera in Hebrew, and it means seed. It's very, very uncommon for Moses to use that word unless he's trying to send a message. And the message he's sending is an illusion to the promissory blessing that's going to be encapsulated eventually in the Abrahamic covenant, which refers then to the coming anointed one, the seed of the woman. And the idea is, I'm going to keep the seed alive. He's referring to the animals, but referring to all the creation being on this ark that needs to be on it, including humans, and that the seed covenant promise is there inside that ark. And the Messiah will come through these human beings that are going to be placed on the ark because he's the seed that's going to come and destroy the works of Satan. And so it's Moses is sending us a message through the Hebrew. Let's pick up on verse 4. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Now, this seven-day interval thing before the flood comes, he's given a warning to Noah. It's going to take seven days before it comes. Prepare. The rabbinic tradition, and again, we're not saying this is biblical, but rabbinic tradition is that this, there was a seven-day delay for the mourning of Methuselah. Methuselah died in the year of the flood, and he was the longest to live of, of the patriarchs there. Methuselah is a typology of God's grace, that he just kept giving them more time, and as long as Methuselah lived, the flood would not come. But the minute Methuselah dies... Then the flood comes. So it's a signal to the end of grace. So the rabbis picked up on this and they said, well, it was a mourning period for Methuselah. Again, that's conjecture, but here's what we can take away from, from that passage. It's really God extending one more, one more time of grace to this world before the flood comes. So at seven, it's, it's a perfect uh, number, which means... Once it's done, it's complete, and then that will be it. But that's the last push that God will give in those last seven days. Now, I don't know what he did 
to, to give more grace. And maybe it was just simply the time. I don't know. I do know this, that if you, you project and, and do a parallel with the Great Tribulation, before human beings reach the point of no return with the mark of the Antichrist, he will send angels all through the atmosphere to proclaim the eternal gospel one more last time before they take the mark. As an act of grace, God is a gracious God. And so, again, we're not told all that he does during this time, but if you take the extrapolation from the tribulation, God gives plenty of opportunities. I mean, for goodness sake, if you can't take an angel telling you the eternal gospel as he flies around the atmosphere saying, hey, something's up here, um, then there's something wrong with you, right? There's something wrong with your heart. There's something wrong with your head. And yeah, they will, uh, there'll be millions of people that spurn that, just like they did in Noah's day. But it's again an act of grace. And then God says, and I will destroy, or the, the Hebrew is the idea of blotting out. You've seen those, that term in the Old Testament. I will blot you out. I will destroy you. I will erase you from the face of the earth is the idea. From the face of the earth, all living things that I have made, except for the rim that's going to be on the ark, right? And Noah did, notice this, according to all that the Lord commanded him. Now that's, it keeps repeating itself that Noah followed the Lord. Noah was obedient. Noah did what was commanded of him. Don't miss that. He does not know what to expect, guys. He doesn't know what a flood is. He doesn't know what rain is. He has no concept of this because it's never rained. It's never flooded. The earth watered itself from underground uh, subterranean levels and there was mists that, uh, that watered the ground. Never seen a drop of rain. Doesn't even know what rain is. He's doing this as an act of faith. He's just following. Okay, God says it's going to do this. This is what I got to do. That's hard sometimes, man. If he asks you to do something and you don't know the end game, you don't know what's all going to transpire, that's very difficult. That's why a lot of people won't act in faith and in obedience because they say, I want to see the whole thing laid out in front of me. And God will never do that. He doesn't do it. He's, I want you to obey one step at a time. I'll show you the next step. And once you take that step, I'll show you the next step. And then I'll show you the next, but I'm not going to lay it all out for you. And why doesn't he do that? Because it would eliminate our faith. If he said, do this, and this is how it's all going to play out, then you, there was no faith then. There's no test. So Noah's being tested in this, and he's, he's proving he is a righteous man, practically even speaking. He will follow God with exactly what God tells him to do. That's why he's one of the heroes of the faith. Anyway, talking about this verse here, that the, um, one of the Psalms, Psalms 32, 9, mentions uh, about what kind of the idea of Noah just doing what he's told to do. And it says in Psalm 32, do not be like the horse or like the mule. Well, be like the horse is to run impetuously ahead of God and be like a mule is to drag your feet. And God doesn't want any either two of those. He doesn't want you to run ahead of him pretending that you know what, what his will is, and he doesn't want you dragging his feet once you do know his will. He wants you to stay at the level of Noah. Do what I tell you to do right now. That's all I need you to do. So either of the two extremes have got to be avoided in our lives. Peter was impetuous, right? He just jumped out and just did things and didn't know what he was doing, tried to cut some dude's head off. Remember that? It's acting impetuously ahead of God. 
Whereas doubting Thomas is like a mule. You have to drag Thomas through things because he's just reluctant. God doesn't want any of those two extremes. He wants to just do what I tell you to do right now in the moment. That's all you need to worry about. Okay? Seems simple, but it's harder to do than just saying it. Interesting enough, in this passage, David referred to it in Psalm 29 about Noah's flood. And he said, the Lord sat enthroned at the flood, and the Lord sits as king forever. There was a time in David's life where he's writing this psalm, Psalm 29, and he's reflecting on the flood, reflecting on what Noah did. And, and maybe there was a storm there in, in Jerusalem when he was king, and he saw the storm clouds coming in and the rain falling, and it maybe brought this to his mind. And what, what David was inspired to, to say in that psalm was, even though the flood was happening and the rain was pouring and the water was rising, God was on his throne in full control of the situation. And then David makes the application then in the psalm that you and I, no matter what storm you're going through, whatever flood is coming around you, if you're in the Messiah, you're secure, you're safe. And the Lord is on his throne and will take care of you. He's not, he's not a distant God that doesn't know what's going on in your life. He knows exactly what you're going through and will take care of you and see you through it, just as he did with Noah. So David makes that application for us. Let's return to the text. Verse 6, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. And again, it marks the day according to Noah's age, 600 years. And remember, the patriarchs lived a very long time. Their genetics were pure, and so they could live a lot longer. After the flood, you'll see the, the, uh, the genetics really run down and people don't live as long. But the idea, the, the idea is to connect the flood with Noah's day, Noah's age, is a prophetic day, is what it's trying to say. This was a prophetic day when judgment came. Verse 7, so Noah with his sons, his wife and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the wa waters of the flood. So <laughs> I want you to think about this. Eight of them, that's it? That's the only ones who, who, who believed and were practically righteous and genetically pure? Yeah, that was it. No one listened to Noah. And this is what you and I have to take as an application. The kind of world we're living in is very similar to the pre-flood era where no one was responding. You have to get used to this. You have to get used to seeing your witnessing efforts not produce the kind of fruit you're thinking it's going to produce. You're going to see a lot of rejection, a lot of denial of what you're saying and what you're doing and how you're living because our world is mimicking now the pre-flood pre era. So don't be discouraged by that. Just continue to, to preach the word as Noah did. Tell people the truth, and that's all you can do. And if eight people get on the ark, that's it. That's okay. That's fine. You have to be okay with it. And you have to realize throughout all of biblical history, all the way from Noah all the way to the end, the remnant is a very small number that get it. The masses of humanity don't. And Jesus, you know, remarked about this. What did he say? Wide is the gate or broad is the gate and many who find it. But narrow is the gate, and, and few who find that, right? 
So he already gave that statement about this remnant concept, and that's what you're seeing is a remnant typology. Eight? There had to be billions of people on planet Earth at that time. You're talking about roughly between 1,600 years to 2,000 years since Adam was created. This whole era was called uh, Atlantis. That's what was the pre-flood world called. It was called Atlantis. Now, I think Plato made reference to the lost city of Atlantis, but the whole era, the the whole concept of the pre-flood world was called Atlantis. That's what the ancients called this time. But anyway, it was a time of unbelievable technology given by fallen angels to humans, but it was incredibly gross because of the hybrid situation that increased the wickedness of man uh, to levels that you just can't fathom. In fact, we're getting on the cusp of these levels of evil pretty quick. We're getting there. And if it's not upon us, it's going to be. But nonetheless, that's what was happening. And so this remnant responds. And uh, let's go back to verse 8. Of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth, two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. Now, what's the, 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 what's the passage trying to say? Adam, uh, sorry, Noah is going to be a new Adam, if that makes sense. Because there's going to be a new creation, so to speak, after the flood, a new world after the flood that Noah will have to populate and, and uh, teach the ways of God. So, remember in Genesis, the animals were brought to Adam and Adam had to name them. So now, in a similar fashion, the animals are brought by God to Noah to rescue. And these will be the animals he carries on the ark and then used, uses to populate the rest of the planet. Now, that means, you've got to remember, too, that this includes dinosaurs. We do not believe in an evolutionary time frame. That's ridiculous. And they're even now coming out saying there isn't enough time. Even staunch evolutionists say there's not enough time. And this is why they said aliens did this and all this other uh, nonsense. But the evolutionary mindset doesn't work. It just doesn't, there's not enough time. But anyway, the whole point about this is God is preserving these animals, creation basically, by putting them on this ark. They will come out and populate the new planet. What we see from many of the species that came into this new world is they couldn't survive very well in the new world. So apparently, from what creationist, uh, Christian creationist scientists indicate that the, the oxygen levels must have been extremely high. There was a lot of protection from radiation. That's why a lot of people live longer. The genetics were better. Um, but the, the planet was hospitable to life living for a very long time, not just humans, but animals as well. So that's why reptiles grew to such large sizes. Well, anyway, once you come off the ark, the whole environment has changed. There's less oxygen. There's more radiation hitting the planet which means radiation produces mutations in the genetic code. And so a lot of these animals that existed prior to the flood died out. Or at least they didn't get to the size that they once were before the flood. So there's a lot of changes in the animals that, that occurred after that. We'll, we'll look at that later on in, in chapter 8 and chapter 9. But just I want to make that statement to understand 
they're leaving the old world and going to a new world, and it's going to change everything radically. Verse 10, And it came to pass that after seven days the waters of the flood were on the earth. So basically God had given the earth 120 years for people to believe. And that's, that was the marker there. They had a lot of time to figure this out. And this is why the psalm, uh, sorry, Isaiah 55 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Guys, you have to understand with the flood, they never thought it would rain. They thought Noah was a joke. They thought what he was saying is ridiculous. But Peter makes the same statement that for you and I, they're going to scoff when you tell them that Jesus is coming back. They're going to scoff at you when you tell them about the great tribulation coming. They're going to scoff at you, just like they did to Noah. But today is the day of salvation. Most people have it in their head that they're going to wait until their deathbed, and as they're slowly dying, they're going to make their decision for Christ. Good luck with that one. That's not usually ha- that doesn't usually happen. People die suddenly, usually in a car wreck, heart attack, aneurysm. They die quick. They don't have a chance to make up their mind. But let me tell you something, this from a pastoral level. I've seen plenty of people dying. And you know what? Their hearts are so hard, they don't want to make a decision at that point in time. They have lived 70, 80 years without Christ. And at that point, their heart's so hard, they don't want to make a decision for him. And they go into eternity without him. That's the norm. It's not deathbed conversions that you see, although that it does happen. But people get so hard. The longer you live, the harder your heart gets, especially if you don't know Christ. And so that's why you got to make this, the, the decision for salvation today. Anyway, God gave them plenty of time. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month. So we're thinking, best guess, because it doesn't tell us if this is the civil calendar or the religious calendar. So if it's the religious calendar, it's the month Ayar. This is late spring, April, May, somewhere in that neighborhood in the Jewish calendar. And again, we're, we're taking a guess because it doesn't pinpoint that. But Moses is saying it happened during late spring, okay, that this happened. And they're going to enter this new day. Um, and what you'll see is it's tied to creation and all that. We'll, we'll talk about that when the ark lands and they come out of the ark. But now I want you to see and focus in a lot of our attention to where did the waters from the, of the flood come from? What, what caused this? So on that day, it says, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up. Now here's where we get into some, some science a little bit. Not too much, but just a little bit. Notice that this was the first thing that happened, not rain. The fountains of the great deep opened up, okay? So water from inside the earth came out. That was the first thing that came out. Now, what we've talked about this in creation, when God separated the waters, we know that there's a a great amount of water under the the mantle. We found this out by a uh, ringwoodite that was attached to a diamond. And I think I mentioned this to you before in creation, uh, when we're studying creation. Uh, a diamond came out of a geyser in Brazil and landed in one of the riverbeds of Brazil. They found it, and it's a diamond with ringwoodite. It's a mineral. But anyway, what it indicated, without getting too scientific, 
What it indicated is that it came from a region inside the earth where there's a zone of water all over the planet, apparently. This is about 250 to 375 miles into our planet, okay, that there's this reservoir of water. Let me show you another picture. So basically, if you see our crust and, and how the planet's situated, there's a whole, under the mantle, a whole thing of water in our planet, according to what they found with this ringwoodite. You only find it in these, these, air, these subterranean water canals under the earth. This is how the original earth was actually watered, by water canals under the earth, and it came up and watered the entire planet. It was an ingenious system that God had created. Well, what happened is something triggered these things. So let me show you another picture real quick. This is the actual ringwoodite that came out of that Brazil uh, river that it indicated to them, think about this. There is more water under the crust of the earth than in all the oceans combined. Under the ground, there's that much water there. So I want you to think about it. That's what they have discovered scientifically. This is not creation scientists. This, these are secular people finding this. And so there's tons of water, just tons of it. Okay. But what started the waters from coming up? Because as God had made them, he had made the waters to water the canal uh, through these underground channels and canals, water the ground, and, the, and then the water would go back into the earth, cleanse itself, from just a natural cleansing mechanism, come back up and just keep recycling from the crust of the earth to the top surface and just recycling back and forth when it cleansed the water. Amazing, amazing what God did. But something had to mess these things up that caused the rain eventually. Well, creation scientists think they have figured it out. They have figured out that there's something that must have triggered this. Let me give you two principles. You can write these principles down, but I want you to keep thinking about this on a theological level. First is the principle of least action. The principle of least action. That's the first principle. And the way that God created the world, nature and, and, and the, physic, the physics of our world, is this, that na nature operates to expend the minimum of effort to cause an effect. Wait, let me state that again, that nature operates, the way God created nature, to expend minimal effort to cause an effect. That's the way our system is. No matter what system you look at, what system you discover, you will see this principle in all the systems. Minimal effort to cause effect. That's the way God established it, okay? So something that can throw off the balance of something, just as minimum effort, will cause a catastrophe, okay? Second, it's called the economy of miracles. The economy of miracles. This is a theological concept all through the Bible, and the economy of miracles means this. Our universe operates with such efficiency that the Creator made, okay, that He, God, will not interfere in its operation unless the natural processes are incapable of accomplishing His purpose for a specific 
situation. Okay? This is why miracles are rare. Let me state that again. The, in the economy of miracles, and this is for a theological concept, that God has created nature with such efficiency that he will not interfere in its operation un, uh, unless the natural processes are incapable of accomplishing his purpose for a specific situation. So let me give you an example. The healing of the blind man, the walking on water, okay? Nature on its own could not produce that because he had to authenticate the Messiahship of Jesus, right? So he allowed Jesus, because uh, Jesus was dependent on the Father, to do these types of miracles to prove his Messiahship, prove he was God, the God-man. But that's why miracles are rare, because God normally lets his system take care of things. And so this idea that, you know, um, in, in, in some of these circles of Christianity where they're having miracles like every day and this and that, that goes against the economy of miracles that the Bible teaches. So, okay, so that those two things being set, what creation scientists say, well, because people would, would punt this off and say, well, well, God just caused it to happen. It's true, but many times God will use secondary means to, to cause something to happen. So, like, let me give you an example. In the tribulation, there's going to be a lot of natural disasters, okay? Now, God could do the, the, do the miracle, but he allows natural disasters to take place at that time. So, really, a lot of times the miracle is the issue of providence. Like, for instance, he lets a great asteroid or a meteorite hit the planet and cause that much havoc. Now, you know, God could do that himself supernaturally, but he allows an asteroid to hit the planet. That's the economy of miracles. Okay, so back to the flood. What creation scientists, using these principles and understanding the evidence of our mantle, say that the fountains of the deep could have only been broken up by one thing and one thing only? Take a guess. Meteorites. What we've discovered... As, as Christians and crea creation scientists, and let me show you a couple of things. We're not talking like little asteroids. We're talking major asteroids, like two miles wide type of thing. And do we have evidence for that? Of course we do. So just the idea that our planet was struck by meteorites in the impact would have been enough to cause the mantle of the earth to get fractured and broken up. And... Uh, let me talk a little bit about the evidence of this. Let me show you this graph right here. In this graph, one is secular dating, so they go 30 million years, and that's like an evolutionary period. But let's use the biblical mo model of 4,500 years. Basically, by the rock layers in the earth, total impacts of, of, uh, total impacts of meteorites, I mean big ones, I mean the, the, the big things, right, that are like two miles wide, in our history, we've had 110, 110 impacts, major craters that produced. Of the 110, the secular and the biblical all conclude there has been 71 impacts at a certain period of time in our crust. Okay, From the unbiblical model, the secular dating, they stretch it across 600 million years. Okay, 
if you take the biblical dating and you look at the strata of the layer that it hit, 71 of the impacts of 110, I'm talking about total history, we've only had 110 impacts. 71 of them were in the same year as Noah's flood in the same sediment layer. 71 of 110. It's like almost all the impacts happened at one time. They're all in the same layers. They're all in, and, and how do we know they're all in the same layers? Because there are aquatic fossils in the same layers of the craters. And so what has led to conclude creationists is that there was a point in time in history, and they strongly believe it was, it was the year Noah's flood happened, that we were bombarded by 71 major impacts onto our mantle. And we're talking about, think about this, 50,000 to 100,000 hydrogen bombs going off. With that kind of impact, with that kind of speed, some of these craters were created by meteorites about 2.5 miles wide, okay? And they all happened at the same time? Yeah, they all happened at the same time. They left craters like this. These craters are massive. This is, I think, in uh, Arizona and New Mexico. This next one is in Australia. Um, this is a, a big one. That one's about 55 miles wide in Australia. I, mean, I want you to think about that impact. In Sweden, there are tons of impacts. There's a lot of the meteorites hit Sweden. But one, one meteorite apparently exploded and its parts hit all of Sweden in that area during the flood area. And it's left these major lakes in Sweden. These are all, th that lake right there is a crater. And they're, they're all in this, in this same area in Sweden. You can see from an aerial, but that's the lake, you know, you know a lot of people see. But they, when you see it from an aerial, that's a giant crater that happened. Well, anyway, from these things in Sweden, they find that they're all in one limestone layer and there's fossils embedded in with the layers as this meteorite broke up. So it fragmented and scattered all in the same limestone area. That's a meteorite right there. But next to it, look what's next to it. That's a noduloid. And we'll find noduloids all over in a sedimentary layer all over the planet. It's in one layer where all this marine life was fossilized by sudden impact, sudden burying, which that's the only thing that can produce fossilization, is sudden impact and sudden burying. Well, anyway, these meteorites have marine layers all around them, which tells you this is the time where the sediment, it, it hit, and that, that layer was then settled by the sediment from the floodwaters, and it encrusted them with marine life at the same place. It's hard to deny it that something, these meteorites are at the same level of where all the marine life is at. I think you know the answer. It's the same layer of the flood. That's what it is. And it's only in that particular layer. Now, I know secular scientists don't want to talk about that, and it, it kind of messes up their whole mindset. 71 of these massive meteorites hit our planet. Now, in the economy of miracles, the miracle is God allowed that those meteorites to hit the planet at that period of time. So it's a supernatural, naturalistic explanation. But that's what you see even with the plagues of Egypt. They started off 
obviously supernatural, but it catapulted in causing so much problems in the physical nature of things, it made things go crazy. It set off a chain reaction. Okay, so what's the chain reaction to this? Well, it says in the scriptures, go back to the scriptures, and the windows were open of heaven were open. Now, wait a second. A lot of early Christian creationists were saying, well, we had a canopy around there. That's actually been disproven. The canopy is out in space. So how could it rain 40 days and 40 nights? Simple. It's simple if you know the economy of miracles. If God allowed the impact of the planet to happen at that period of time, it cracked all the subterranean caverns that watered the planet. What it did is it, it cracked our Earth's mantle so bad that the lava that's in the core of the Earth came through these cracks. As the water is in there, the lava makes contact with the water, and guess what then starts happening? You start having geysers shooting up into our atmosphere. And I'm not talking like the geyser, uh, you know, of... Uh, What's that one that called in Yellowstone? I mean, Jellystone? What is it? No. Old Faithful. Not Jellystone. That's Yogi Bear. Um, Yellowstone, right? And so you have Old Faithful, right? Well, that's caused by the, 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 the heat hitting the water, and it shoots the steam up in the air. So that's a miniature one. We're talking when all those water reserves underneath came in contact with lava, it shot the water back through in steam form, up through the canals, through the earth, and plummeted way into our atmosphere. Well, as you know, as the farther you go up in the, our, our atmosphere, it gets colder. So once it, the, the steam hit that cold atmosphere, it then would come down in torrential rain for 40 days and 40 nights. You could not have our current weather system produce 40 days and 40 nights. It, but it's not a myth. If you go back to understanding Old Faithful and understand what it's doing, this was happening way into the atmosphere. And, and, and creation scientists said, once that water in the core and mantle hit that lava from that cracking from the meteorites, it would have shot the water up in supersonic speeds through those fissures. And you know, if you blow water through a hose... The smaller the hose, the more it shoots out and farther it goes. It's the same concept. All those areas that water the earth, those things are shooting up into the atmosphere way up in there and supplied all the rainwater. So notice that the biblical text. What happened first? Did it rain first? No. The fountains of the deep were broken up. We now think the missing element was they were broken up by meteorites pummeling the planet. Then the rains happened. If that's the scenario, the biblical record is telling you the right order. Fountains of the deep, then rain. And, and that really, honestly, at this point in our science and understanding, that is the best theory for how all that rainwater happened. And, and honestly, like you know, once those things are cracked, all that water from underneath the, the, the earth is just going to simply seep out and flood the rest of the planet and covered the entire planet at that point in time. Wow. We'll talk more about this, but what's the application in all this? The application is 
Noah didn't know how this would go down. He just knew what the Lord told him. A flood's coming, get in the ark. It's the only safe place. You and I are looking back and we can somewhat understand it. We understand rain. We understand flooding. We live in a world that can understand that. But he didn't. He didn't. Noah had an incredible amount of faith to move forward. Because here's what he had to do, and this is the same thing you and I have to do. You have to trust God so much that when he says, I have an abundant life for you, that you have to take that step towards the abundant life and leave your old life. And that's very hard to do. It's very difficult to leave your old life. Now, you can be saved, believe it or not, and not leave your old life. You can be saved and still be worldly. You can be saved and still be carnal. You can be saved and still have one foot in the world and maybe one foot tapping into Christianity. That's very possible. Well, what God's saying is you need to be like Noah. Leave everything behind. Leave what's weighing you down. It's not just sin. It's, it's the things that entangle you into the world. Jesus gave a parable about the soils. You remember that whole parable? There was four different soils. One, you know, the enemy took it away and, and took the seed. But then the other three are believers. Most people don't see that because life had sprung in them. One believer was too shallow. He never matured. And so the, the, the scorching sun came out, persecution came, and he couldn't withstand it. The other one was, had life, but guess what happened? The weeds entangled his life, which is meant, meant he was wrapped up in the world. And then the other one was the good soil, and he matured and went on. It's that other one that was wrapped around the weeds. That's what gets a lot of Christians in trouble because that represents their old life, the material life, the here and now. And folks, you know the world is living for here and now. You can't get caught up in that game because at some point in time, folks, you and I who hope for the future, we place all our eggs in that basket in the ark of, of the Messiah and we're looking forward to the future, a kingdom, him rescuing us, taking us home. And they laugh at us for believing in that. They call us fools for believing that, that our hope is in the future. Our hope is with Christ. They laugh at us now because we don't live for now like they do. But one day, it's going to start raining. Drop one, drop two, drop three, drop four. And the water will come up to their ankles. It will come up to their knees. And they had never seen this. But everything Noah was saying was right. And then the water came up to their waist. They started looking for high ground. And then it came up to their neck. And they're struggling can't find any high ground, and then they drowned. That's what happened. Someday in the future, our future will become present. Their present that they're living for will become their past because their present can't save them. They're living for now. And when our future becomes the present, those who called us fools will not call us fools. The epithet that they will be given when they're drowning, not in a flood of water, but drowning in the fire of the tribulation, their epitaph will be forever, you fool. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, 
where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.